0: Connie Glazer, Director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing what's become a hot topic: Chinese public diplomacy efforts and political influence operations, especially in East Asia and the Pacific. The scope and nature of Chinese state-sponsored public diplomacy have seen dramatic increases under Chinese President Xi Jinping. However, it's notoriously difficult to find ways to quantify these efforts. AData, a research lab at the College of William and Mary, recently partnered with the Asia Society Policy Institute and CSIS China Power Project to produce a groundbreaking report entitled Ties That Bind, Quantifying China's Public Diplomacy and its Good Neighbor Effect. And the report examines key parts of China's public diplomacy strategy, as well as assessing both its efficacy and implications for the region. To discuss the findings from the Ties That Bind report, I'm joined by Samantha Custer. Samantha is Director of Policy Analysis at AData. She's co authored World Bank papers on open data and citizen feedback with the Open Development Technology Alliance, and she's assisted former US Secretary of State Madeleine Albright to teach a class on foreign policy. Samantha previously advised on multilingual education policy with SIL International and coordinated the advocacy efforts of the Asia Multilingual Education Working Group for UNESCO. Sam, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Bonnie. So, in Aid Data's latest report, Ties That Bind, you bring to light five key components of China's public diplomacy financial, cultural, exchange diplomacy, elite to, to elite diplomacy, and uh, informational diplomacy. So, could you briefly explain all of these and what do they look like in action?
1: Sure. It's a great question, Bonnie. And it was surprising, actually, as we embarked on this study, how much debate uh, there actually was about which activities should or should not be included in public diplomacy. Um, But what we did find is that there was quite a degree of consensus around the fact that um, China uses two main strategies. Uh, One that is push and one that is push and pull, kind of interactive back and forth. Um, You know, on the push side, China, we're very interested in seeing how they package positive messages about their culture, beliefs, and values for a general audience, a broad-based audience. And then we're also interested in looking at some of this more interactive back and forth, two-way communication and interaction between Chinese citizens and leaders and those of other countries to increase mutual understanding and closer ties. So when it came to actually trying to quantify um, what some of these public diplomacy tools look like in practice, we then focused those two strategies down to five different areas. Um, So the first you alluded to is informational diplomacy. So what we mean here is broad-based communication activities to increase awareness and sympathy for Beijing's policies, priorities, and values among the general public. So this can include investments in China's own overseas broadcasting via state-owned companies. So things like Xinhua News Agency, uh, it's television broadcasting network, China Radio International, et cetera. But it can also include partnerships with domestic media outlets in other countries. So uh, this could be buying majority ownership shares in domestic outlets through large Chinese corporations, or it could include um, conducting training for journalists from other outlets in the region. Another area of focus for China um, is this idea of cultural diplomacy, and this is similarly broad-based. Uh, these are activities that promote awareness of and or sympathy for Chinese culture and values among policy elites, the general public, or specific subgroups of interest. So some specific examples of this could be uh, Chinese cultural events, you know, Chinese New Year celebrations at the local embassy, for example, or cultural centers, or something that has become much more in notice and, and of great debate in recent years is this idea of Confucius Institutes. Um, these Confucius Institutes are um, they're managed by a public institution affiliated with the Chinese Ministry of Education, and they have an explicit mandate to promote Chinese language and culture, and they're usually set up as a partnership with local universities. Um, exchange diplomacy, now we're starting to move from the, the broader push strategies to more of the interactive two-way. Um, So exchange diplomacy, these are activities that China is using to socialize prospective future leaders from uh, another country regarding Beijing's political or professional norms, values, and to cultivate personal relationships. So examples of this could be uh, exchanges between political parties, uh, training for government officials, sister city programs, which we look at in the report, as well as student or professional scholarship or exchange programs. Financial diplomacy, uh, this is something that there's been a lot of speculation and attention about how Beijing uses the power of its purse to cultivate allies and win friends. Um, And so this is a, a focus of the report and certainly an extension of China's public diplomacy. So we define this as official financing activities that enable China to ingratiate itself with another country's population or government. Um, And we look at four different subtypes of this um, financing, Uh, direct support to a receiving country through national budget support, debt relief or restructuring, humanitarian relief, and investments in, in infrastructure. And I'll just briefly say on that last point, you know, it's important to recognize that this is not actually a balanced portfolio at all. If you actually dig into the numbers, you find that 95% of China's financial diplomacy is actually squarely focused on infrastructure investment. And then the last area that we look at in the report is this idea of elite to elite diplomacy. Um, And these are activities to cultivate personal relationships between officials uh, of China as well as their counterparts in other countries. Um, and the design here is to increase sympathy for and alignment with China's uh, policies, priorities, and values. And this most often is, is seen through high-level visits by Chinese government, military, and other officials uh, to other countries, as well as invitations for uh, foreign officials or elites to visit China.
0: So in the report, you describe the goal of China's public diplomacy efforts as essentially reaping a good neighbor dividend um, or uh, getting a more, f- more favorable public perceptions. And of course, importantly, closer alignment with Beijing on policy decisions. So do you think that China has been successful in achieving these uh, efforts, uh, has, has it achieved its objectives? And what forms of public diplomacy are working better than others?
1: Yeah, I think that it's interesting when you look at uh, quantifying the actual volume and scope and distribution of China's public diplomacy activities. You do see in the numbers that China definitely has ramped up um, the volume and diversity of its efforts. And we look at between 2000 and 2016 in the context of the study. And anecdotally and descriptively, we think that they are most confident in using what we would call their longer standing public diplomacy tools. So using the power of its purse, financial diplomacy, and building relationships with political elites through official visits. Um, but that said, you know, on the, in terms of what Beijing is trying to do, they are also experimenting with a wider set of public diplomacy tools, particularly these cultural and exchange programs to augment its traditional engagement. Uh, with countries. And I think, you know, if you you look at this question of the good neighbor dividend, we can break it down into two parts. So one is that, you know, to a certain extent, China is intending for its public diplomacy to uh, be able to sway public perceptions uh, to be more in favor of and favorable to Uh, what China is trying to achieve, whether it's broader culture or uh, particular positions. And we do see some indications that Beijing's public diplomacy is doing just that. Um, We use the Asia barometer, which is data on citizen perceptions of China, the public attitudes survey that's um, been conducted between 2010 and 2012 and 2014 and 2015 as our measure of perceptions of China's favorability. And we see that three of the tools that we looked at in the report, uh, financial diplomacy, cultural diplomacy, and elite to elite diplomacy are actually generally associated with more favorable views of China. So we see that uh, people in countries that are exposed to a higher volume of financial diplomacy and official visits were more likely to view China as having the best development model for their countries to aspire to and as having a net positive force within their country. And interestingly, people in countries that receive more Confucius Institutes also appear to view China as more influential in the region and as a positive force in their countries. So, you know, by some of these measures, we are seeing some relationship between what China is trying to do with its public diplomacy and more favorable perceptions. That said, it's not true across the board. Uh, we see some instances, particularly its exchange programs, sister cities, that aren't really seeming to generate much of a, a response or a change in perceptions. But percept- popular perceptions are only part of the, the the game. You know that there's a second important piece at the end of the day, um, and that is that Beijing is interested in changing or influencing. Uh, leader behavior in particular ways to advance its foreign policy interests. And so we look at one facet of that in the report and this idea of the extent to which China is able to sway leaders to be in closer alignment with its foreign policy positions in international fora. And so we use voting behavior uh, in the UN General Assembly as a barometer of that. And what we do see, again, is some indication that China's public diplomacy efforts are paying off. Uh, We see that countries in the region were most likely to vote with Beijing uh, in the UN General Assembly when they received more official visits, more Confucius Institutes, and financing on generous terms. So, you know, I think anecdotally what we see on the ground as we've spoken to people within the East Asian Pacific region, certainly there's a perception that China's uh, public diplomacy is sometimes rough around the edges, <laughs> but that we also see some real quantitative data that's pointing to the fact that it's having some effect.
0: There's been a lot of attention being paid to China's Belt and Road Initiative and the uh, trillions, uh, at least uh, more than $1 trillion that uh, Beijing has uh, assigned, I think, to uh, to infrastructure projects, although a lot of that is pledged, uh, not necessarily uh, provided yet. And there's one surprising finding in the report, that China's pledges of large amounts of money for projects are producing positive dividends, regardless of whether they're being implemented or not. So why do you think this is the case? And maybe you can give us some examples.
1: When you speak to people on the ground and when when you follow the international media, and you were to ask people to think about what would be one example of public diplomacy that would be most prevalent in people's minds when they when they think about China and public diplomacy, it would invariably be infrastructure investments. That definitely comes right to the fore when people think about China. Um, but as you alluded to, uh, you know, there's a substantial amount of skepticism uh, in many quarters about whether these are empty promises. So. Uh, in some countries, there was a sense that China tends to make pl- new pledges of financing, particularly for infrastructure, with great fanfare. It's quite unusual in terms of how they, they go about doing this. They hold big press releases, press conferences. They invite lots of local people, local journalists, and they really want to make a big show of these investments. But there there is a increasing concern that will this money actually arrive on the ground, you know, how much of it is China is trying to take advantage of the megaphone and the limelight with their promises and be slow to deliver in terms of actual projects and programs. Um, There's also some concern that, um, you know, whether the investments that are being promised are actually uh, tied in with what countries actually need. Uh, So in the case of Malaysia, there's a a lot of debate and and contention around the fact that China's investing heavily in new ports uh, in the country, and yet there's a perception on the ground that you know, the current port infrastructure in Malaysia is actually under capacity, and so why do you need to take on more debt, and how much of this is really about advancing China's interests versus local interests? Um, and so, with all of this in mind, you know, we expected going into the to the study that there would be a, a sorting out or a differentiating between uh, commitments that had been pledged or money that was supposed to come versus uh, projects that were actually completed. Um, and what we find out in practice is that well, China seems to get a benefit no matter what. Uh, now, certainly, the improvements in popular perceptions that that are triggered by a completed project are indeed much higher uh, than if it's just merely pledged or or promised. But even those pledges or promises are received really favorably. And one of the prevailing thoughts around why that might be the case is that many of these investments are fairly new. And so it remains to be seen whether China will actually deliver on them. And so, you know, certain countries or leaders may be giving China the benefit of the doubt at this point that they can deliver. And they often view this as, you know, a net positive for them if they view Chinese investment as having less red tape, um, as more uh, convenient, as less didactic when it comes to particular environmental regulations. And so if China is able to actually follow through in a reasonable time in the next few years, then we would expect to see um, that, you know, continued boost to popular perceptions. But I think in the next few years, if you see instances where China is failing to follow through and projects get deferred or delayed or get wrapped up in in particular requirements, then I think you you might begin to see more of a differentiation again, where people aren't so quick to assume that China will follow through.
0: You did case studies in uh, Fiji, the Philippines, and Malaysia. I wonder whether in all cases your interviews supported the data, or were there any contradictions?
1: Yeah, there there were cases of of each kind. So, you know, I think you know, what we see on the ground in the three countries where we conducted key informant interviews, uh, across the board, there was a sense that financial diplomacy and official visits were the most important uh, aspects of China's public diplomacy efforts, that these were the things that were most visible, most top of mind for people. And there was a sense that uh, these were the things that were going to be most effective. And what we see in the data, the quantitative uh, data is there's some support for that. Uh, that the, the vast majority of China's efforts are in the the financial diplomacy and the the official visit side of things. Um, I think there there were other areas in which, though, that the, there was a little bit of tension, perhaps, between what we're seeing on the ground and what comes out in the in the quantitative data. An example of this is also in the financial diplomacy arena. So we. We had heard many people speak about uh, Sri Lanka as a cautionary tale of what can happen when countries uh, absorb high amounts of high-interest, burdensome debt, and that was very much on top of people's mind. There was a concern that, uh, you know, if their country borrowed too much from China, that that would be catastrophic for them. But interestingly, when we actually did the statistical analysis to look at uh, financial diplomacy of different kinds and popular perceptions. Contrary to what we expected to see, we found that individuals from countries that received a greater share of less concessional financing, the higher interest debt, actually viewed Chinese influence more positively than those that received more generous handouts in the form of highly concessional aid. And so that was really counter to what we expected to see. I think the second area that uh, was quite a departure point for us um, was this idea of militarized disputes and China's role in the South China Sea and the degree to which that is actually shaping um, both popular perception and the actions of leaders. So the South China Sea routinely, particularly in Malaysia and the Philippines most, uh, most clearly, uh, there was a sense that this was like the def- defining uh, issue uh, when it came to relationships between China and countries in the region. And yet, and, and so we would expect to see, you know, higher volume of militarized disputes uh, with China, whether it's South China Sea or others. We would expect to see more friction when it comes to influencing popular perceptions or leader behavior. Uh, we don't actually see that, which is counter to what we would expect to see. Uh, we found that the presence of militarized disputes uh, factor much less into whether Beijing was viewed positive or negatively by the public. And we don't see that it had any bearing at all on whether leaders voted with China in the UN General Assembly. And so there's a question of whether, you know, this is something that is, is strongly felt but not strongly enough to take action on these, these feelings regarding China and the South China Sea? Or is it being seen, is it playing out in different ways that we're just not picking up yet? But I would say that those two things were the most surprising um, examples of daylight between what people see on the ground
0: and how they perceive China and
1: what we actually see in the data.
0: Hmm. That's fascinating. So other than the potential debt trap, which gets all the attention in the media, what other concerns should countries have about China's public diplomacy initiatives?
1: So I would say maybe there's three that immediately come to mind uh, over and above the, the debt trap that we already spoke about. The first is partly indicative of of Beijing's unique approach, I think, with public diplomacy where they emphasize financial diplomacy and connections with high-level elites so strongly. And so the, the nature of that particular approach uh, brings with it certain risks, namely that um, you know there could be a risk that China would gain undue influence with leaders that are willing to exchange favors for economic gain. And you know, in several countries across the board, there was a kind of a, a call or a rallying cry for greater disclosure and transparency uh, regarding the amounts and terms of foreign grants or loans that support government activities or political candidates. So that is one big implication, I think, of China's unique approach to public diplomacy. The second is that uh, another facet of China's public diplomacy is that it, it tends not to be well-publicized. Now, certainly uh, the outputs of Chinese public diplomacy in the form of, you know, infrastructure investments can be highly publicized, but the actual, you know, depth and the diversity of its of its public diplomacy strategy is often not understood. And there is a very fine line, I think, between, you know, uh, broad-based, transparent, publicly accessible public diplomacy and this idea of clandestine influencing operations, um, that these things are are very porous in their boundaries, and the latter group is of increasing concern. Um, And I think that's exacerbated by limited transparency, and that's a view that I think came out quite clearly uh, at the the local level is, you know, there's just not a lot of uh, visibility on, on... the extent to which uh, China is doing what they're doing uh, with international elites. I think that uh, because of that, particularly for democratic countries in the the region, they should consider taking additional steps to curb foreign influence in their domestic political campaigns um, and think about new legislation to prevent foreign funding of political candidates. Um, And one particular example is very practical. Since uh, China uses paid uh, sp- or sponsored content in local news media uh, quite extensively at present, there is no way to differentiate that between the regular news. Um, and so, one clear step forward could be labeling, you know, the sponsor content for what it is, so that people know and have open eyes. And then, the last thing I would say, you know, that was clear to me um, in talking with people at the country level is that. Beijing's ability to influence countries in the region has as much to do with Western countries turning inward as it does with the effectiveness of Beijing's own public diplomacy. And there was a a kind of a distinction drawn between the centrality and the high-level political buy-in or support for public diplomacy as part of China's foreign policy strategy and, and the vast amount of resources going behind it. Uh, that There was a, a contrast drawn between that and what you see in a lot of other Western countries, Australia, um, the U.S., for example, where uh, there's been kind of a drawing back and a pulling inward and, and less resources, less attention, less high-level political support for uh, for public diplomacy, and that comes at a cost. And so I would say that those would be the three things that come to mind for me.
0: Major countries in the world really all conduct public diplomacy. Of course, the United States does. And in fact, the uh, the State Department of uh, Public Diplomacy Funds uh, supported the, uh, the research uh, that you did. So can you maybe describe a bit whether China's public diplomacy efforts are different from those of other major countries, um, either in terms of goals or in terms of methods?
1: Yeah, I think that there are several examples in which the way that China deploys this public diplomacy strategy, particularly the types of activities that it deploys, is actually very similar to that which you see that are used by other countries. Uh, You know, you see informational diplomacy, international broadcasting as like a favored tool that many countries have used in the past, and China is now adopting that, Uh, you see, examples of international student exchanges and sister cities that's a very popular tool as well Uh, financial diplomacy etc and so you know some might say well china is a relatively late arrival in terms of uh, deploying kind of a concentrated public diplomacy strategy but it is like quickly learning from the countries that have been experimenting before them so in some respects a lot of similarity there and also in terms of the motives uh, involved, So, you know, China is very explicit about the fact that it wants to use public diplomacy um, partly to achieve very specific national uh, security objectives, but also to, to kind of win the, the narrative, you know, to have a, a more positive uh, story about China's rise as peaceful and non-threatening. And I think there are corollaries to, you know, the objectives that other countries have to use public diplomacy to tell its story on their own terms. And yet I think there are also a couple of things that are maybe unique to the way that Beijing deploys public diplomacy. So some of them I I alluded to previously. So one is um, the level of transparency or lack of transparency is somewhat unique, uh, you know, aside from these very high profile infrastructure investments A lot of what China is doing in public diplomacy is very much under the radar in back rooms (laughs) behind closed doors, and so it's hard to to quantify and know what's going on, and that's somewhat unique, I think. Um, Second, I think the higher reliance on uh, elite-to-elite diplomacy or financial diplomacy that are targeting uh, political elites. That is somewhat unique to China. While they are experimenting with some of these broader-based tools and trying to interact with your average citizen, I think that's much less of a, of a uh, much less of a, a mature or sophisticated strategy for China than it is for other countries. And then I think perhaps the most important point would be this idea of uh, the level of centralization of their particular practice of public diplomacy when we were in Fiji, Malaysia, and the Philippines, often people would contrast um, China's approach to public diplomacy and that of Western countries or Western democracies. And so, you know, what they would say about China is that no matter who the end actor was that was involved in a public diplomacy activity, could be a company or a civil society organization, uh, could be a government agency, there was a A perception that this was all highly coordinated uh, and centralized within the the Chinese government. The same is not uh, not said of Western countries or Western democracies that tend to be far more decentralized in how they um, go about their public diplomacy activities. Often companies and uh, international organizations are kind of broadly working under the rubric of public diplomacy but are far less um, dictated to by uh, their governments. And so there can be a pro and a con to that. On the one hand, you know, people would say that China's public diplomacy stor- story benefited substantially from having a single voice, whereas there was a perception that for other countries it was a little bit lost in translation because you had many smaller voices and not one concerted voice. But on the other hand, what you're also seeing in countries is that public diplomacy from Beijing is also being viewed with some suspicion as being tantamount to pop- propaganda uh, because you know it is so closely associated with the state and is so clearly speaking with one voice.
0: Finally, what are some of the research questions that remain unanswered regarding Chinese public diplomacy after you've finished this report?
1: So there are kind of three uh, broad areas, I would say, of, of questions that I think are remain to be seen. There's probably many more, but I'll just highlight those three. Um, so one, uh, for the sake of time and just um, the, the constraints that we were working with on the study, I think this area of informational diplomacy, the use of not only investing in overseas broadcasting by China, um, but also partnerships with domestic media outlets I don't think that we were able to get sufficiently deep that we were able to quantify the scope and the, the downstream effects of this particular tool and there's a lot of debate on the, the efficacy of this you know there's a sense that um yes in most countries in the east asian pacific region did have you know some chinese television radio uh print media coming into their countries but How many people were reading this and what if anything was it doing to change perceptions it was unclear and i think that would be worth maybe more of a of a focus in future particularly when we count the cost of um, some western countries you know actually pulling back in that area Uh, what kind of ground if any are they ceding to to china china's own informational diplomacy i think the second uh, i alluded to previously which is you know, seldom is China's public diplomacy happening in a vacuum, that when you interact with people in in countries in the East Asian Pacific region, you know, they're interacting with China, but they're also interacting with the U.S. or Australia or Japan. Um, and, you know, when we talk about the, the ability to gain popular perceptions or um, to change leader behavior, it's not only important to look at you know, the extent to which China is able to do that, but also this the idea of relative influence. And as China is uh, being able to sway popular perceptions or change leader behavior, how does that affect other countries in the region or other powers that are trying to influence in the region and vice versa? Um, and then finally, you know, we looked at one particular facet of leader behavior, um, voting patterns in international fora like the UN General Assembly. But I think that there are perhaps many other examples uh, that we could explore to really answer this question. Okay, public diplomacy, we can look at the scope of the inputs and there's a lot of attention to what China and others are doing, but what does it matter at the end of the day? And I think it gets to down to having to quantify some of these other potential um, ripple effects. that would be on my wish list for continuing the research moving forward.
0: Well, I want to congratulate you on the publication of your report, Uh, Ties That Bind. And the video uh, from the launch of the report in Singapore can be viewed online at chinapower.csis.org. And uh, we've been speaking with Samantha Custer. Samantha is Director of Policy Analysis at Aid Data. Thanks for talking with us today.
1: My pleasure, thanks very much Bonnie and thank you to the Center for Strategic and International Studies and the Asia Society Policy Institute for partnering with us as well as the US Department of State. We couldn't have uh, undertaken this, this study with, without all of your support.